Welcome to episode 229 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Fast, Feast, Repeat, the comprehensive guide to delay, don't deny, intermittent fasting. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste, Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous and they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during 
during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 229 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? Well, I am packing up to go spend three weeks at the beach. It's exciting. It's the longest I've ever been away from home. So Chad just has realized that I'm leaving tomorrow. I mean, he's known that I was going, but he's like, wait a minute. Three weeks is a really long time. And I'm like, sorry. Is it the longest? Really? It's the longest I've ever been away from him. Yeah. Our whole married life. Yep. Oh, wow. It just worked out. We got, I have a lot to do with the house and in between rentals and, you know, <laughs> lots going on. And I also got friends coming. I didn't go for the entire month of July because the house was rented. And so... I only, you know, spent one week there in June. So I just, I grabbed these three weeks in August for myself and I have a lot to do, like I said. So I'll be very, very busy, but I've got a couple of friends coming down, one, and then she's leaving, then another's coming, then she's leaving, then Will's going to come and spend some time with me. (sighs) I'll be doing a lot of recording while I'm there too. Like my regular podcast recording schedule is still, you know, happening. So I'm sure it will be super fun and productive. It will, but Chad is going to miss me, so he's already let me know. So, yeah, I think it's going to be awesome. I'm very excited. The ocean is very warm in August, so that's nice. I love the Atlantic, the warm Atlantic. I'm going to get in the ocean every day. Like, I like to get in the ocean and and jump around with the waves. It's like a really great workout, like really. Yeah, I agree. I'm an Atlantic Ocean person. I feel like people are either Atlantic or Pacific. Or you might be Gulf of Mexico. Some people are Gulf of Mexico. I am not. That's what I am. You're Gulf of Mexico. You like the calm. It's just what I, like growing up, that's where we went. So that's what it all boils down to. It's whatever beach you went to growing up. And guess where I went? Myrtle Beach. That's where my grandmother took me. <laughs> so that's where I go. And, you know, my we found a picture that was, my, my mother came to visit us, you know, a couple of weeks ago and she brought some old photos 
that actually a cousin on my granddaddy's side had given so us pictures we'd never seen before because they were like my aunt, my old, old aunt on my granddaddy's side had them. And so we'd never seen them. And it was some pictures from when my mother was little and was right down there where we bought our house, like 10 minutes away from where we bought our house. My mother and my uncle and my grandparents were there in the 50s. And it well, actually, what was I guess it was, yeah, the early 50s. So it's like right, maybe right even before my house was built that I'm in that was built in 56. So, you know, like 10 miles away. It's really, really fun. We have vacation routes in this area. So no wonder I love it. <laughs> I love that. So what's new with you? Well, I have two exciting announcements. I was just looking at the calendar, though. One of them will have already happened. But all the more reason, friends, to be on my email list, because if you miss this, you would have known about it. You can get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash email list. But although, you know what? I might also send an email through our email list because it's relevant. I'm doing a Q&A with the people at Zoe. Oh, I love that. So not like an interview for my show, just uh, we're going to do a live Zoom because I'd been getting a lot of questions about Zoe. And the Facebook group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people, well, people loving it, but then also people a little bit confused about the recommendations and just wanting some clarity. And I sent those questions all over to them and they were super great. A, they like got me very detailed answers, but then they said they would prefer just doing like a live thing and talking to people. So that should be super fun. One of the main things that people were, I guess, curious about was it seemed like a lot of the food recommendations were very similar. I mean, they are, (laughs) they said they are, but that it's like evolving and that they're, you know, working on making it more personalized. And even though the foods might be similar, as far as recommendations go, the scores are different. Like that's what I noticed working with the moderators of my Facebook groups and the social network, the friends of mine who went through it that are moderators, comparing our scores. Like we would put in the same meal just out of curiosity and see what our individual scores were. And the scores were very varied. Even though, you know, the same foods are like, you know, scoring typically higher, the combination would get a different result. If that was what was fascinating, like we didn't get the same exact number. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, even though we were both putting in the same, like we would even check brand names of things. Like somebody's like, oh, look, this score is a 99 for me on Zoe. And someone else would put it in and it would not be a 99. I haven't done Zoe. I wonder if it'd be more appropriate if I do it first before. Well, that's a thought. Remember, you got to eat those muffins. You got to do it for science. But it's just one day, right? I can't remember. And it's always changing. Like it was, it might've been two days of muffins, but then what they're doing right now is even different from when I did it because just like you said before, it's always evolving. This is really research in action. They're not just like a program you buy and here's the program. No, they are actually doing scientific research. Like they published something in the the journal Nature, which is a very, you know, well-renowned scientific journal recently. So they are they're evolving their recommendations and everything about it based on as they learn, as the science evolves. So write this down. I might email them. I might see if they would prefer me to do it first. Yeah, that's a great idea. Also, I have a friend. They actually asked her to do it again. Like they're comparing data. So as part of the the study, they said we would like for you to go through it again with your, you know, just to see. I also finished Tim Spector's book because I'm interviewing him in less than a month as well. Isn't he wonderful? Well, I guess I was anticipating just from what I'd seen from the feedback about Zoe from my audience, I was anticipating it to be much more not open to something like his section on like meat, for example, he was very much clear that most long lived populations eat meat and very clear on what might actually be going on with that. And he was also, I loved his perspective on salt. I loved his perspective on wine and alcohol. Can I pop in something real quick that confuses a lot of people about Zoe? Mm -hmm. Just because something doesn't score a 100 doesn't mean you're not supposed to eat it. That was just an example. We tend to want to gamify and beat our scores. And if, if this scores a 90, then I should try to get a 95. And so, like, people can mistakenly think that, like, a meal that includes meat with the Zoe scores a 75, and that means you shouldn't eat meat. 
but that's not what it's what it's saying. They're not, you know, when you follow their recommendations and follow their program, they don't tell you that your all your meals should score above a 90. So people mistakenly think that they're being guided to not eat meat at all, when really that is them looking at numbers and thinking, I want to get 100. Like we were trained to get 100 in school, right? Getting 100 is what you want. Always 100. That might be something Zoe could keep in mind maybe for feedback because we're so trained. It's ingrained in our psyche. The goal should be 100. That's not how they want you to live your life. And I'm glad that you got that sense from reading Spoonfed. I thought it was going to be not as nuanced in his perspective on like the things I just mentioned, meat, salt, alcohol. The things I learned in the alcohol chapter, I learned so much. Like just things I didn't realize, like the recommendations for alcohol intake between different countries. I mean, I knew it was different, but it's shockingly different. And then the correlations to health just don't line up. Like he said in Chile, the recommendation, which I tried to verify this and I couldn't find this number this high. So I'm not sure where this was coming from, but he said like in Chile, the maximum recommended intake is the equivalent of six classes per day. And then in the UK, I think now it's like zero or something, but they have the worst health. I mean, it's just really, really interesting. Not saying that alcohol is like equals health automatically, but he definitely creates a really nuanced picture. But also you can't go by recommendations as equating for health. Just because they recommend they have zero in the UK, I don't think the UK is following that recommendation. (laughs) So just because they recommend zero and have terrible health doesn't, you know. Yeah, it's a very valid point. He even said some pretty, what I thought were very controversial things about the role of alcohol in pregnancy. I was like, oh, did not anticipate this. I'm really excited to interview him. I mean, he's a scientist. He, he's looking at that that info and he's not always telling you what is politically correct to say. It was something to the effect of drinking during pregnancy. And I'm sure there was more context about the amounts and everything, but basically it very rarely actually creates issues in the child. But again, don't quote me on that. (laughs) Read the chapter. It's been a long time since I read it. I read it when it first came out and I haven't read it since. So maybe I should go back and read it all. I think it's on my Kindle. I think that's how I bought it. So if not, I'll get it on my Kindle and I'll read it on the beach. It's spoon fed. I didn't mention the title yet. So for listeners, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And his other book, The Diet Myth, is really good too. I'm going to try to read it if I have time before interviewing him. But just keep in mind, it was several years older. He evolves his thinking. But I learned a lot. It was way early in my, we were all different, opening up of my mind. (laughs) It was really early. I read it in maybe, it was either 2015 or 2016. So it was well before I wrote Feast Without Fear. It really is what got me thinking and got, it, it was like a foundational, just like the obesity code was foundational for me. So was The Diet Myth by Tim Spector. We might start production this week on the serapeptase supplement. So listeners, get on my email list for that. I have an email list just for that supplement. It's at melanieavalon.com slash serapeptase. And we're going to do like a special pre-order special. And the prices will probably never be, probably not be that low ever again. I say this every time, but basically serapeptase is an enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. You take it in the fasted state, it breaks down residual proteins in your body. So it really addresses anything that, or it can address anything that is from a protein buildup or your immune system reacting to proteins. So arthritis, inflammation, brain fog, fibroids, an article just came out in June and I haven't read all of it yet. It actually talks about the role of serapeptase to treat COVID. I saw that somewhere. Eating up the proteins. I actually saw something something related to COVID and serapeptase. I wondered if that's where you were going with that. Yeah, probably. It wasn't that article I sent you, was it? Well, I just saw this like yesterday. Okay, then it wasn't. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but I haven't sat down and like read every serapeptase study that I can find. So I need to actually do that. I'm really excited to. You'll be like the world's premier expert on serapeptase. <laughs> the few studies I've read it's just so overwhelmingly clear that it has so many health benefits and it's really appreciated in countries like Japan and just here it's just not even people are just not aware about it and like one of the studies i was reading it was saying that it rivals NSAIDs for its effectiveness without any of the side effects of NSAIDs and just to be clear we're we're not hinting that it's going to like prevent or reverse or covid or anything like that but what it does is it breaks down proteins and so that's an interesting you know thought 
maybe I'll report back next week after I've read the whole study about what it actually says. Cause I think it just talks about a few different mechanisms of action, but so in any case, I'm creating my own brand. I've been taking it for years, different brands, but I'm just going to create my own. So the two email lists to get on are melanieavalon.com slash email list and melanieavalon.com slash sarahpeptase. These show notes, by the way, will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 229. And I'll put links, we've already talked about so much, to everything there. Shall we jump into everything for today? Yes, let's get started. And we have a question from Anonymous. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. Or some feedback. Oh, yeah. It's feedback. Yes. And the subject is body burning alcohol for energy. Anonymous says, hello, and thank you for your podcasts. On episode 225, you answered a burning question I've had for years about the body using alcohol as a fuel source. I know someone who fasts daily and eats only dinner. He's very lean and well-defined, although he does not lift weights or exercise. In fact, he's disabled. However, he drinks beer all day long. Now, this is just me interrupting. I would not consider that fasting all day. I mean, beer has plenty of fuel in it. So, And beer is actually, I mean, has carbs as well. It's not just like pure alcohol. So he's definitely not fasting. I just wanted to get that out there just in case. Like, let's say someone was listening and they they stopped listening. Right. (laughs) If he's drinking beer all day long, he is not fasting, not even close to fasting. Okay. She continues to say, I always wondered why he doesn't gain significant weight while adding fuel to his body. This couldn't possibly be fasting. That's her that said that, but you're correct, Anonymous. All right, let's keep going. Then you posited that in theory, one could drink alcohol and burn more calories than taking in as alcohol isn't stored as fat. So I suppose then my friend is the realization of this theory. While I wouldn't want to replicate his pattern of eating or drinking, It makes sense to me now why he is so lean and still dirty fasting. Thank you for your thoughts. It helps bring so much into perspective. And again, I really don't like the words dirty fasting because I really don't think it's true. We like to have the opposites. Like if there's something called clean fasting, there must be something called dirty fasting. And I actually think the opposite of clean fasting is you're not fasting. Not fasting. Right. And the only reason I say clean fasting is because so many things have the words fasting in there, like a juice fast or a bone broth fast or a fat fast. And I don't think those are actually fasting either. They're just, you know, a pattern of eating different things or drinking things that are not really fasting. Anyway, I just had to throw that in there. Sorry. I guess if you were doing a juice fast or a bone broth fast, you're fasting from physical food, but you're not fasting in the the sense that we think of fasting. Well, like if you were asked to fast for a medical procedure, that would not fly. Like they would not want you to drink bone broth before your your fasted surgery. You know, that's kind of a good way of thinking about it. If it's off limits for, <laughs> for a medical procedure, then like you wouldn't want to drink a lot of beer right before your medical procedure either. I'm just saying like terminology wise, like you could eat food and be fasting just from apples and you're not eating apples. Like you can fast from something. I'm fasting from apples. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like the Daniel fast. It's a religious fast that my parents' church does. And they're eating. It's food. But it's just a special kind. They're like refraining from certain things. But it's not the kind of fasting we mean when we say fasting. Exactly. It's a very interesting observation from Anonymous. So, yeah, we've talked about this before. But basically, and again, beer is on the higher carb side of the alcoholic drinks. Well, I guess it really just depends, but alcohol itself doesn't really become body fat. Like I I highly doubt it ever does. So if people are just taking in alcohol, they're actually probably not going to gain any fat from that alcohol. That said, what you eat with the alcohol can very easily be stored. And then on top of that, if you take in 2,000 calories from alcohol, that's 2,000 calories of energy. So it's still adding to your total daily caloric intake and that the other food is more likely to be stored. So beer is technically, typically only 5% alcohol. Wine is about 12% alcohol or more. This, these are averages. According to average, beer would average 5%. Some will be more, some will be less. Wine will average 12%, and spirits are really only like spirits like vodka, usually only about 40% alcohol, 
unless you're drinking grain alcohol or something, you know. I wonder if that is averaging together like sweet wines and normal wines. I would think that it, that's what that would they do for an average. Like if you go to the store and look at the back of all the wines to see the alcohol percentage, which is something I have done <laughs> trying to see if I can find any dry farm wine equivalent wines in the store. It's so hard to find wines with alcohol less than 12.5%, which is what dry farm wines uses as their cutoff. Usually there are more than that. Well, and again, that could be old data. Maybe now it's higher. I mean, maybe maybe it used to be 12 and no one's updated and everybody's just assuming it's still 12. It's a good question. It just shows that all these alcoholic drinks that we're drinking, it's not just alcohol. So you're not just taking in alcohol calories. The That other you know, 95% of your beer is not alcohol calories. 95% of it is not alcohol. So, yeah. I'll give a link since we mentioned dry farm wines. Of course, some of it's water. I mean, I have to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, right. Because it's by volume, not by calorie. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I was thinking about it in my head. I was like, hmm. I don't know the percentage of a beer that is of the calories, the percentage of the calories that would be the alcohol. That's another question. I don't know. I just realized this recently. So the dry farm wines, a lot of them, they relabel with their own label. And for listeners, so dry from wines, they go throughout Europe, they find wineries practicing organic practices. And then the wines have to be low sugar, low alcohol, less than 12.5 or less, like I just mentioned. They test them for toxins and pesticides and mold. So I experienced such a difference drinking them, but they often now relabel the back label to give more information. And it shows grams of sugar, which is so cool. So most of them are like one gram of sugar. I love the labels that they put on there. It's so helpful. So that would be very negligible calories from carbs and alcohol. Will's coming over for dinner more lately. So last night we're all sitting around and each of us had like a tiny little glass. (laughs) We opened the bottle like day before yesterday of Dry Farm Wines. It's red wine. And, you know, I don't drink much red wine. But I had like a tiny little bit. So it's now we've eat, we've had like four servings from it and it's still only half the bottle because we're each having tiny little bits. And even Will, because he's 21 now. Oh, fun. He's going to be spoiled rotten with his dry form wine. I know. No kidding. Oh, my gosh. You're making this 21-year-old have expensive tastes, but in a good way, right? Yes. And, um, oh, well, she'll be editing this, so she'll hear it, and her birthday has already passed. But just to show how much we love it, we gave our fabulous girl on our team who helps edit the podcast and create show notes and artwork, we gave her dry farm wines for her birthday. Happy birthday again, even though it's past Brianna. Happy birthday again, Brianna. We're like, what should we get her? And we're going back and forth, and we're like, well, you just can never go wrong with dry farm wines. Can never go wrong. Never. So for listeners, if you'd like to get your own, you can go to dryfarmwines.com slash ifpodcast, and that link will also get you a bottle for a penny. So that's exciting. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get an exclusive discount on one of my favorite products for truly upgrading your health on a cellular level. So the new year is upon us, and it's often a time where people are really trying to instill new habits and really upgrade their health. There's something I have been using for years, not just at the new year, literally every single day of my life. I am not making that up. Even when I travel, I have a way to address it then, which I will tell you about. And it's something that is so easy and feels amazing. That is red light and near infrared therapy. Okay, so friends, you could go somewhere and pay a lot of money to do red light near infrared therapy sessions, or you could just bring it to your home and use it every single day. That's what I do. I've been using Juve red and near infrared light therapy devices for so long. There are so many clinically proven benefits of red light therapy. That includes improving your skin. Yes, you really will notice it. Faster muscle recovery, reduced pain and inflammation, enhanced sleep, and so much more. I use it in the morning and evening as ambient light because it actually mimics the setting and rising sun. And then I sort of run it throughout the day as well to help combat all of the blue light that we're exposed to, which can have a negative effect on our health. Whenever I have muscle pain, I shine Juve on the muscle. For me, it has made the pain go away instantly. And then for chronic pain, when I do continued sessions, it's made it dissipate. One of my good friends who is a doctor uses these devices on his, shall we say, manhood for benefits there. Yes, it can help in that department as well. I honestly could not imagine my life without Juve. 
You will just feel so good using these devices. People also post all the time in our Facebook group of their pets gravitating towards the Juve because intuitively they just know that it's good for them. The reason Juve can address so many things related to health is because it actually affects our cells on the mitochondrial level. Basically, it makes those cells perform better. And when those cells are performing better, everything just works better. That's why, yes, Juve can help with your energy as well. I've been recommending Juve specifically for years because the quality of their devices are the best. Their modular design allows for a variety of setup options to give you flexibility. The treatments are so easy. You can do them in as little as 10 minutes, or you can be using it all throughout the day like I do. All you have to do is relax and let your body take in the light. They also have their Juve Go, which you can travel with. Yes, that is how I really do use this every single day. That Go is also great for targeting specific areas of your body, like hurting joints or sore muscles. Honestly, friends, health doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be complicated. If you're looking to enhance your health and wellness this new year, start with what matters, which is your cells. And Juve has an amazing offer just for our audience. You can go to juve.com slash IF podcast and use the coupon code IF podcast to get a discount on your qualifying order. Again, that's J O O V V.com forward slash IF podcast to get an exclusive discount on your order. Pick up a Juve today. Some exclusions apply. I really hope you guys can experience Juve. It really is one of my favorite things. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Shall we go on to our first question? Yes. So this question comes from Sarah. The subject is waking up feeling exhausted during ADF. And Sarah says, Hi, Mel and Jen. I wonder if you can shed some light on this. I've been IF for two years and lost 40 pounds. I have PCOS and am about 10 pounds for my goal slash healthy weight. I'm currently 151 pounds and five feet, four inches. I've been doing three 42-hour fasts most weeks since January, never less than two a week. I tend to only lose weight if I'm low carb in my eating window, which I find quite difficult and really watch what I eat. I don't eat bread, pasta, or rice usually. Otherwise, I maintain with three 42-hour fasts, which sucks. I've tried shorter length fasts and one meal a day, which causes me to gain weight. My question, on the days I do 42-hour fasts, I sleep really, really well, but feel awful when I wake up really tired and find it difficult to get out of bed. It goes once I'm up and awake, but I love to feel better. It doesn't happen on days I've eaten. I've recently had my general blood checked all fine. I take multivitamins, magnesium, fish oil, primrose oil, and electrolytes when fasting. I'm 50 and with perimenopausal symptoms, such as hair falling out. Can you suggest ways to feel better? Love all your podcasts, books, and websites. Awesome. Thank you. I do want to say that I'm not certain that hair falling out is a perimenopausal symptom. That's what I was going to say. I feel like it's not. It actually is a symptom that what you're doing is stressing your body out. So I wonder if you may be over fasting for your body. I don't know. Count back three months as, as a rule of thumb, three months or so before the hair started falling out. Did you go through something stressful? If the answer is, oh, yeah, that was when, you know, my son was in the hospital or that was when I started a new stressful job, you know, like stress can make our hair start the hair fall process. And it's whatever your body perceives to be as a stress. So count it back. You even could have had an illness that your body perceived as a stress. So, but we try to make a lot of connections with like what it is. And, and sometimes we're not right. Like it might not be menopause. So just, just keep that in mind. So it can be a sign, but I think everything you just said is probably more likely the case. And given the context of our question, it might not be menopause. Yep. If you have PCOS, then that lets us know that your body likely has an issue with insulin because you know generally PCOS is related to higher levels of insulin. And so you're going to need to do things to get your insulin down. And that is why you know the longer fast tend to, tend to be good for your body. And also that it's probably why your body responds better to lower carb. So... I mean, you said it sucks. That's a bummer. And I know that it's frustrating. I get it. Because I would not be happy either if my body needed me to do something that didn't feel like the thing I wanted to do. However, that being said, we have to work with the bodies we have. 
not, you know, our ideal, what we want. Like, for example, I wish I had a body that was doing great with allowing me to have a glass of wine, a big glass of wine every night, maybe two, but I don't. So I've had to say, well, you know what? That isn't what my body does well with. You know, if I eat too much sugar, I get restless legs. So I have to adjust what I do to match what I want to have happen. I want you to reframe that, you know, the 342-inch, 42-inch, I don't know where that came from, (laughs) the 342-hour fasts. Instead of doing 342-hour fasts, what if you did 336-hour fasts? That might make a big difference. 36 to 42 is a lot of difference, six hours. So 342-hour fasts might be more than your body wants to do. So try 336-hour fasts instead. That would mean you're eating earlier in the day. Maybe model after, you know, the carbohydrate addicts diet, which is an oldie but a goodie. But, you know, that was really early days of realizing how insulin affects us. And she talked about it in there. You know, maybe do a low carb on the days that are your up days and you're going to have a 12-hour eating window instead of six. Because I really do think that three 42-hour fasts a week might be over restriction. Because the research on ADF, they weren't restricting at all on the updates. Like they weren't having a six-hour eating window. So if you're having a six-hour eating window every single time, that just might be over-restriction. So back to the carbohydrate addicts, what I was talking about is she had the plan. It was low-carb breakfast, low-carb lunch, regular dinner. And that was it. That was the whole plan. And people lost weight doing that. So if you do that on your updates, low-carb breakfast, low-carb lunch, regular dinner, maybe still not if you know you don't eat bread, pasta, rice usually, but just, you know, allowing yourself to have more whole food kind of carbs in that dinner. So 36-hour fast, up day where you try low-carb breakfast, low-carb lunch, and then, you know, maybe slightly, you know, up your carb intake at dinner. See how that goes. See how that makes you feel. That might make you feel better. And if it doesn't, if you still feel terrible on the days after your what are now 36-hour fasts instead of 42-hour fasts, if you still wake up feeling terrible, I want you to restructure your down day. Maybe on your down day, you have a low-carb dinner instead. So it would look like on what's your down day, instead of having a complete full fast, you would have a a down day that has a low-carb dinner. And then the next day low-carb breakfast, low-carb lunch, higher-carb dinner, and then just alternate that. See if what you're doing isn't just too restrictive. Because really, the hair falling out, the fact that you're doing three 42-hour fasts, the fact that you're having trouble, the fact that that you're seeing weight gain on one meal a day, that just makes me feel like you might need to do just a little, little something else. You might be over-restricting. Yeah, between Jen and me, I think we're going to offer a lot of different options. I'm glad that Jen took the approach of still keeping in the longer fast, but just not quite as long. So that's definitely an option. I would probably suggest not doing any longer fasts. Jen was just talking about how the fact that you gain weight on one meal a day or shorter fasts is signifying that there's a lot that you can work with with what you're actually eating in your eating window. Because I feel like you should be able to find an eating pattern and a one meal a day pattern where you at least, at the very least, maintain, which would be my goal. So my goal would be nix the 42-hour fast. I think what you're doing, it sounds way too restrictive. You're 10 pounds from your goal weight. That's always when it's the hardest. You wake up exhausted. You don't feel good. You said you feel good once you get going. That's probably from adrenaline kicking in and your hair is falling out, I would stop. (laughs) Like I would stop these long fasts. I would not do them. I would suggest trying one meal a day every day and really working on the food choices to find, don't even try to lose weight. Just find something that maintains and then you can move forward to losing weight. I almost wonder if the fact that you're doing three 42-hour fasts, if the weight loss that you perceive that you're losing and the weight gain that you perceive that you're gaining, if it's literally just volume of food. Fluctuations from volume of food. By 42 hours, you probably lost the physical volume of all the food and then you're probably not retaining water. So then when you eat, you probably gain back 
volume wise, just food. And then it's like, if you were to keep doing one meal a day, you might feel like you're gaining weight, but it's really just that now you have a volume of food in you every day that you didn't have before. Yeah, that's so true. People people do find that to be the case. I've actually had people say, gosh, every time I shorten my eating window, I gain weight. Like I, I don't gain weight on six hour window, but if I have a one hour window, I gain, gain, gain. And really, I think it's just the the volume of the food sits differently in the body when you eat it all in a constrained window. And then it like causes you to even retain water differently. Because that bulk of that food moving through your system in a different way. Yeah. So I think just psychologically, the way you're interpreting the gain might have a lot to do with that. This just seems so restrictive to me. Like for, <laughs> a lot of people are really, really proud of themselves if they do one 42 hour fast and you're doing it three times a week. I think there's so much potential. So for what I would suggest to do, if you want to try one meal a day, well, first of all, I would, like I said, accept the fact that you're going to quote gain some weight, but it's the volume and you're going to need to do it long enough for that to stabilize, to actually see what is weight gain and weight loss and what's, you know, like I just mentioned the volume. So um, you're doing low carb. We don't know what foods you're eating in low carb. I don't know if this is something that you're doing, but a lot of people in the low carb sphere don't lose weight, even if it's working for them, because they think that low carb means unlimited fat. But if you're eating enough fat to the point where you're not tapping into your body fat, you're probably not going to lose weight. And I think this is one of the biggest things that people experience in the low carb world when they when they can't lose weight. So I don't know if you're adding fats to your food. I don't know if you're just doing low carb, like low carb foods, or if you are also adding fats. So a lot of people, when they do low carb, they're adding, you know, olive oil or butter, maybe even cheese. If you're doing any of that, I would stop doing that and replace it with more protein. So focusing on lean protein, because that's the most satiating, that's the most thermogenic, meaning it's going to stimulate your metabolism the most. That's the least likely to become fat as a macronutrient. So if you want to stay with low carb, depending on what you're doing, reconceptualize it, focus on the protein, focus on not adding fats. If you want to add fat, I say this a lot, but I would add C8 MCT oil. That's actually very pro metabolic. So that's a way to sort of like, because some people's metabolisms on low carb and it's not a bad thing, but they might actually slow down a little bit just because of the nature of the macronutrients. And I found that adding C8 MCT oil actually can combat that a little bit because it's very thermogenic and metabolism stroking. And to clarify, not in your fast with your food. And I'll put a link in the show notes to the one that I really like. As far as the carbs go, I know you said that you only lose weight if you are low carb, but I really like what Jen was saying about the potential of, what is it called where you add in the carb days? But it's the, the carbohydrate addicts diet because since Sarah has PCOS, we know that insulin is is likely a big issue for her. So getting the insulin down more should be something that she targets. And that's why low-carb is so beneficial for people with PCOS. I misheard. So the carbohydrates addict diet, you don't have carbs, do you? You do. You have a low-carb breakfast, low-carb lunch, and a, quote, regular dinner. Okay. So I would suggest something similar. If you're going to do a one-meal-a-day thing, having low carb days. Then if you want to have a day with carbs as like a carb up, so it's sort of like cyclical keto or something like that, having a carb up day in your one meal a day and making it very high carb, but making it very low fat for that day. And I want to also say that you're likely to see a four pound weight gain the next day. And so after a high carb day, after being low carb, and that is why people think, oh my gosh, I gain with the carbs. No, that's water weight. It, you did not gain four pounds of fat overnight from a high-carb day. I actually did a program years and years and years and years ago back in my trying all the diets day. It was called Carb Night. I've talked about that before, Melanie. Mm -hmm. Kiefer. Yep, yep. Carb Night. And the whole point of that was you were low-carb for like, I can't remember, I guess six days a week. And then, <laughs> and then one night a week, you have Carb Night. And it was where you added in lots and lots of carbs and you're really trying to get those carbs in it. And he you know, had the whole scientific reason why, why he recommended that because it keeps our hormones from, anyway, all the things that were said to happen when you're low carb with your hormones, this prevents all that. And so it's, it keeps your metabolism going kind of a thing. It's been a long time, years since I read that work. But 
the whole premise was once a week, carb night. You know, you you had to understand that after the carb night, your weight was going to skyrocket, but it wasn't all fat. It's the water weight and that comes because carbohydrates make us retain water, hydrate water. For the carb night, you do focus on being lower fat as well. That protocol works really, really well for a lot of people. That's probably the protocol I would actually recommend would be a one meal a day situation, making the low carb days, low carb, making them very high protein and not adding any fats. If you do add fats, add the MCT and then have a carb night one night a week where you do high carb, low fat. Now, I don't recall it being high carb, low fat because I I remember I was in the community for a while. This is a long, long time ago. There was a Facebook group for it. I recall us eating things like gelato and we were not low fat. So I don't know if we all were doing it wrong, but I don't recall the emphasis being low fat. I think if I recall correctly, and I can double check, I think he suggests you're allowed to have fat, but I think he suggests like you start with carbs and the the idea is to fill up. And then if you're still hungry at the end, that's when you add in the fat, but you don't start with the fat. That's not how I remember it. But again, I could be misremembering it or it might be the other way around, but it's, there's an order to it. I just know I was not doing low fat in there too. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is you can have it. I'm pretty sure I, cause I read this a few months ago and I think there's like an order to it. And I also, it could have been revised since then. Maybe he revised his recommendations since whenever it was, I was doing it years ago. That is entirely possible. Regardless of what he writes, I personally believe that if you make that, that high carb day, low fat, then what's so incredible about it is, so if you've been low carb, so you've been, you know, a fat burning ketogenic metabolism, lowering insulin. When you have that carb up day, you get all of the metabolic benefits of carbs. So, you know, thyroid stimulating, metabolism promoting, filling up your glycogen stores throughout muscle and your liver. If you do that in the context of high protein, high carb, low fat, it's actually, even though you'll most likely gain water weight, it's actually unlikely that you will gain much weight at all. So it's like you get to have this like you're not really gaining fat. You see it on the scale though, but I, that's what I don't want people to be freaked out about is like, oh my gosh, look at the scale. I'm up. I've gained all this fat from this. See, my body can't eat carbs. That is not what that means. Right. If you do eat fat on that high carb meal, you're going to store whatever fat. So basically that's way you can see it. So if you do this high carb day, this carb up day, basically see it as whatever fat you eat that day, you are most likely going to store. Not if it's not over what you needed. True. Just because you eat fat doesn't mean you're storing it. Because I mean, I eat fat every day and I'm not storing a bunch of fat. I eat fat and carbs together every day. Only in the paradigm of now you're overeating. If you're overeating, what's left over will be stored. What I'm seeing in my head is a lot of people who do this carb up, they make it really intense. It's like the big feast day. The cheat day kind of paradigm, which is not really (laughs) what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, I don't like the idea of cheat day anyway. Yeah. So let us know, Sarah. Let us know how it all goes. I will also, just because I mentioned this last week, I'm reading Dr. Michael Platt's book about adrenaline dominance. And he really recommends, and I I've started doing it, he really recommends progesterone cream for all hormonal issues, really. But he actually recommends it right before eating for insulin sensitivity, which was really interesting. Apparently, it if you take it right before eating, it's it's only in the bloodstream for a brief amount of time. It can possibly help you with your insulin response. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. 
contamination. David's been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof coffee. And it is called Danger Coffee. And friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. All right. Shall we go on to our next question? Yes. And this is from Evelyn. And the subject is non-scale victory and donating blood. She says, hello, ladies. My name is Evelyn, and I have been doing Jen's Fast Feast Repeat Protocol for just over a year. I would like to report a few non-scale victories and ask one question. First, a bit about me. I am 51 years old, a mother of four adult children, happily married for nearly 30 years, and work at home as a private piano teacher. Mid-July 2020, during the middle of COVID and shutdown, I was taking inventory of my life. My weight was the highest it had ever been at 210 pounds. Gosh, I just want to say there's so, we have so much in common, Evelyn. I only have two children, <laughs> not four, but I've been married for 30 years. I got up to 210. So many similarities. I'm 52. You're 51. Anyway, back to the question. She said, I was entering into menopause a few more months, and I will be past that famous one-year mark. I was charting my blood work from several years past and began to see that the trend was getting higher and higher in almost every category. I could see the writing on the wall that medicine would be in my future. Kind of depressing. When my girlfriend graciously shared her copies of your two books, Jen, I read them both in two days and started immediately. I was a rip the bandage off kind of girl. My first hope, of course, was to lose weight, which I have. I am currently 158 pounds with about 10 to 15 pounds to go but I also wanted to work on my blood work. I'd like to report this year, my wellness checkup, that all my numbers improved and are once again within normal ranges. Hooray, I'm cheering. That was me cheering for Evelyn. My total cholesterol dropped 30 points and the nurse said that doesn't usually happen without medicine. Amazing. My blood pressure and blood glucose numbers are near perfect. And today I saw my eye doctor for the first time in a year. He made the comment that the health of my eye looks like a 20-year-old. He has never said that in all the years I have seen him. He mentioned that my eye pressure, which I take daily drops for, has gone down. He seemed pleased with that. I also realized today that I no longer have any floaters. They've disappeared. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's when you see these little spots like floating in your field of vision that just pop up 
you think there's like something floating in the air, but it's just something in your eye, in your field of vision. All right. She said they've disappeared. That must be autophagy at work, doing its thing, cleaning up the old and used up parts. It's been exciting to see how my health has improved in such unsuspecting ways because of IF. Okay, my question. As part of my turning 50 and becoming an empty nester, losing weight, and just enjoying life in this new season, I started giving blood. I have never done it before, and so unwittingly went to the blood drive without eating breakfast a good 12 to 14 hours into my fast. I got through all the screenings with good, quote, grades, and then they casually asked me, you've had a good breakfast, right? Um, no, I hadn't. They almost turned me away. I promised them that I am very much used to not having breakfast and that if I were to get dizzy, I would tell them. I know that for many people who are not fat adapted, giving blood without their regular source of energy stocked up may not be good. But do you know if you must or even should eat either before and after and when donating blood? They also offer food afterwards too. I will gladly break my fast to give blood several times a year if I must, but must I? Can you see a day when this eating protocol is different as more and more IF people show up at blood drives? Thank you for fielding this question and rejoicing with me on the non-scale victories. So after reading this, I'm so curious. I wish Evelyn had said how she felt after giving blood in the fasted state because that would be very instructive because she said they almost turned her away, but it sounds like they didn't, which sounds like she followed through giving blood in the fasted state. And in which case... It would be very interesting to see how she felt because I'm a big believer in listen to your own body and how you feel. And if she felt perfectly fine after giving blood, that would be a big indication that it works well for her body. And again, they have food afterwards. If you feel that dizzy, low blood sugar, there's something there you could eat it. Yeah, because it does sound like she actually gave the blood. When I first read her question, I was thinking she didn't. Let us know, Evelyn, if you did give the blood in the fastest state and how you felt. I will note, so she was saying that maybe because she's fat adapted that she would be, you know, less likely to be dizzy or or faint. I do not recommend people give blood in the fasted state. It's actually not about blood sugar. It's about blood pressure. So it's not something that has to do with your fat burning metabolism. So not everybody faints, but it it just has to, well, obviously, because people aren't fainting left and right, but it has to do with how your body reacts to a perceived blood pressure drop that can happen pretty quickly from giving a large amount of blood. So, I mean, it's obviously up to you if you want to try. I have fainted before with blood and it's a very unpleasant experience and I don't wish it on anybody. It's not terrible, but if you haven't fainted, it's surprising. I have never fainted ever. Not in my entire life. You probably could have guessed that, right? Yeah, I probably could have. Has Jen ever fainted? Yes or no? No, Jen has not. Has Melanie? Yes. It's just funny. So I've only fainted once from blood, from a blood draw, and it was forever ago. But still, just because it's such an intense experience, because you you feel like you're, you feel like you're dying. Like, like, because you don't know what's happening and then you wake up and like, you don't know what happened and it's just not pleasant. And what's really interesting, I do blood tests all the time. Like listeners know this all the time. I still get nervous now because, because I fainted that one time, maybe this is something I can work on like with a therapist or something, but I still get nervous even though I'm like a champ at blood tests. I'm always worried I'm going to faint. I do all my blood tests fasted, obviously, because you have to be usually fasted for blood tests. But giving blood is a whole nother... I would just be really nervous to be completely fasted and do a blood draw. But I would love to hear if any listeners who are doing fasting, I would love to hear their experience. So yeah, I do think that's really interesting though, that it's not related to blood sugar. Oh, something that has reassured me though about just getting blood tests is that the amount of blood they take for a normal blood test, it's negligible as far as your body reacting to it. So if you faint from a blood test like I did, that's usually psychosomatic. It's not going to be because of this massive blood pressure drop, most likely, that is possible when you're giving blood. Or it could be psychosomatic blood pressure drop. But my point is when you're giving blood, it's a physical amount of blood that can create that blood pressure drop compared to when you're getting a blood test where it's actually not a huge difference in your overall bloodstream. Fun facts. (laughs) Any thoughts, Jen? Well, this is just one of those things that I'm not comfortable saying yes or no to. I'm not going to say yes, fast, or no, don't fast, because that's not 
I would always ask, you know, follow the recommendations of medical professionals before any kind of procedure, even giving blood. And it's, you're not doing it very often. You know, go later in the day after you've eaten. If they want you to have something to eat before you get blood, go when your window is open. And then now we don't even have to worry about it. You're not having to sacrifice your fast or making them happy. And whatever the reason is, maybe the reason is they're wrong and you don't need to, but I'm not going to say that. (laughs) I would do it later personally when my window was already open just to not even have to ask the question or worry about it. That's just what I have to say about that. I never want to go against a medical professional. Does that mean I think every medical professional has always got the most updated information? No. We know that. Things change. Protocols change. Recommendations change. Doctors have different ideas about things. Research changes. So follow the advice. If you go to give blood and they say you should have had breakfast, then have something to eat. Come back later. Go during your window. Better safe than sorry. Exactly. If you eat, you're much less likely to faint, and then you know it will much more likely be a successful blood draw. Exactly. All right. So our next question comes from Stephanie. The subject is 4-3 window. And Stephanie says, hello, I just love you girls. I've been doing IF for three months and I'm down 25 pounds. I just love it. I recently started the 4-3 window. I only have 500 calories on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I've always done a 24 window. I was just wondering on my up days, do I fast for 20 hours still, or can I start eating whenever I get hungry on my up days? Also, I'm a fitness instructor, so I burn about a thousand extra calories a day in exercise. Should I up my low days to 1000 calories or stay at 500 calories? Thanks so much. So thankful for your podcast. Well, this is a great question, Stephanie, and I can answer it pretty quickly. Please do not fast for 20 hours on your updates. No, 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 no. There's a lot of confusion with updates. And the research that was done on alternate daily fasting, they did not have any sort of fasting paradigm or window on updates. I mean, none. They were not instructed to skip breakfast, eat breakfast, eat in a window. They were just told on a down day, Depending on the study, some down days were full fasts and some down days were 500 calories, depending on the study. And the up day was just, now you eat. So they had the down day protocol they were following, whether it was 500 calories or zero calories. And then the up day, they were just instructed to to eat normally. And so I'm pretty sure there was nobody in those studies that was also continuing to fast on the up day. So we don't have data on that. We have no research on that. I mean, maybe there was somebody when I say I'm pretty sure there wasn't. No, it wasn't reported in the studies. They probably most of them ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That is why I make the recommendation for an update to purposefully make sure you're eating at least two meals, at least six to eight hours. Just because it's hard for some of us that have been doing intermittent fasting with the time-restricted eating for a while, it's hard for us to wake up and have breakfast at seven in the morning. So we, we feel better delaying our breakfast or not eating first thing when we get up. But we need to consciously make sure we're eating at least two meals, at least a window of six to eight hours. But again, notice that at least that doesn't mean, okay, well, then I'm going to do six every day. Like, you know, that first question that we answered from Sarah, she's doing three 42-hour fasts a week. Just because I say at least six to eight hours doesn't mean, all right, I'm going to go with six because I'm really dedicated. You know, sometimes we feel like more is better and it's not always. So with alternate daily fasting, they found the metabolism didn't didn't slow down from that alternate, that rhythm. But the up days, they were eating more. And of course, you know, we don't recommend, you know, calorie counting. There's a lot of flaws with that. But I'm going to use the word calories in, in terms of energy intake. They were eating more calories than their bodies needed on the up days. I can't remember the percentage, a hundred and something percent of their their daily caloric needs on up days. So you want to eat more food. It needs to be up. You want to slightly overeat on up days. So if you're comparing an up day to a normal day when you're not doing intermittent fasting, you want to slightly overeat on an up day. And so if you're doing a four-hour eating window on an up day, are you going to be slightly overeating? Doubtful. 
And oh, for the other part of Stephanie's question, the research on alternate daily fasting, they were right around 500 calories, and it didn't matter how active you were, if you were a man, if you were a little tiny woman, it was just, hey, let's just do 500 calories. I mean, if you want to have a 1,000 calories, I mean, you could do your own approach to it. It won't be exactly the same as, as the researched alternate daily fasting, but if you want, if your body needs more than, than that 500 calorie down day, and you just try it and see if it works for you. That would be okay because you're still, you know, you're having that. It's kind of like a hybrid approach or you're modifying it. You just don't want to over-restrict. You don't want to err on the side of over-restriction is is my point. That was great. I was going to say it was, use my word, hybrid approach. I guess the thing to clarify is just in general with ADF, it's not like you adjust your calorie intake based on your activity to do ADF, which I think might be the confusion maybe for people. They think, oh, it's 500 calories, but I adjust for my activity. Everybody was assigned the same 500 calories on the the down days. Although in Dr. Johnson's book, I can't remember the title of it, but it was it was one of the early ADF books out there. He actually did have, you know, like men can have maybe 600 calories or something. I don't know. There was a little bit of variability in there, but he was just basing it all just on calories. It was before we really understood there's a lot more going on than just calories. Speaking of, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. I'm listening to an interview. It's the latest interview on Peter Tia. It's with Steve Osterd, PhD. It's making me so happy. They're diving deep into studies on calorie restriction, especially because there have been quite a few studies that have been confusing. There was the one like in the rhesus monkey studies and the monkeys on whole foods diet versus, I don't remember the exact details, but it was like calorie restricted monkeys on either a whole foods type diet or calorie restricted monkeys on a, like a processed diet. I don't think I've ever seen a, a monkey study with ultra processed and, and whole foods. I don't think it was one study. I think it was two different institutions, but it's been something that has been perplexing because I believe there was greater benefits in the, um, the processed diet monkeys. Basically, like the takeaway was that when you're eating a whole foods diet, there might be less benefit to gain from calorie restriction compared to when you're on a processed diet. That's been a a conundrum. And then there was something I talked about when I interviewed Dr. Stephen Gundry. There was like two different mice studies looking at mice on processed diet or whole foods and perplexing findings with the mice eating the processed diet experiencing greater benefits. I don't know if it's because it was like protein amounts, but Dr. Stephen Gundry's theory, and it's the theory that I immediately thought of when I read it, was that by eating a processed diet, because they only put out the food at a certain amount of time, by eating the processed food diet, it actually created a longer fast because they ate it so fast and it was digested fast. In any case, there's been a lot of really interesting studies on calorie restriction and rodents and monkeys and sort of perplexing findings. And so if you listen to that episode with Peter Tia, they're I'm only halfway through it, but they're diving deep into it. They also talk about that famous calorie restriction study, you know, the biosphere where the people went in. They've been talking about that too. So Annie's been talking about how calorie restriction in rodents in the wild actually probably does not lead to longevity. It actually reduces lifespan. I'll put a link to it. It's really, really interesting. That does sound really interesting. Yes. But you did an excellent job answering that question. <laughs> Jen's got it. Well, I I know how to answer these these questions with the because I've heard them all in the Facebook groups back in the day, and you know that's what I I love helping people. You know, I, Melanie is the one who loves what are the monkeys doing. <laughs> I mean that with love, Melanie, and I'm like, let me tell you the nuts and bolts of this of how you can make this work for your life with with your question. <laughs> I think that's why you make a good team. I think so too. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. Again, the show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 229. There will be a full transcript there, all of the links. I'm plugging it again. Definitely get on my email list for the serapeptase at melanieavalon.com slash serapeptase. You can submit your own questions for the show. Just directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. I'm Melanie Avalon and Jen is Jen Stevens. 
All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? Nope. I think that's it. Next time I will be coming to you from the beach. Oh my goodness. I'm excited. (laughs) I'll talk to you then. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.